Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, the shit no one tells you about writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to our usual Books with Hooks segment. Today, Carly and Cece are going to be looking at two queries each, and we're going to kick it off with Cece, will you read us the first query letter? I will. And before I do, I just want to share with everyone that Baba is with me. Usually he is not with me when we record, but Baba is my adorable English bulldog. So if you hear snoring, sighing, and if you're wondering, why is Cece's voice a little different today? That's because I have a perfect fur baby sleeping on my lap. All right, let's get started. Dear Bianca, Cece, and Carly, I'm excited to hear about your interest in epistolary stories because Saved is an 80,000-word domestic fiction novel structured in modern epistolary form. Saved explores themes of regret, shame, and ultimately parental forgiveness. When a surviving son delves into his late mother's digital files and print artifacts, he uncovers a painful truth she never wanted him to know. Inspired by the explosiveness of midlife secrets in The Paper Palace, the complicated bereavement in the TV show This Is Us, and the mining of carefully hidden clues in the digital text The Appeal, Saved's unique storytelling structure draws a portrait of an intricate and life-altering love triangle viewed through the eyes of a grieving son years later. 
When Noah is approached by a health organization to write an online piece about his late mother, Anna's organ transplant experience, he realizes he knows very little about her donor. He gathers not only Anna's old hard drives, phone records, and notebooks, and correspondence, but also those of his late stepfather, Dennis. As Noah digs into these archives, he connects the pieces of the puzzle he was missing and unearths a landmine that blows up his world. All his life, Noah believed that his father died in a drowning accident when Anna was pregnant with him. But Noah now sees Anna hid many truths, and that was one of them. As Noah pours over the intimate contents of her life, he discovers why his mother never told him about her deceased organ donor. She was Dennis's estranged wife. That painful deception was followed by a bigger one. Anna had a brief encounter with another man a week before her first husband drowned. That man was Noah's biological father, and someone Noah had been close to all his life. Shattered by his mother's betrayal, Noah abandons the file, the online essay, and his childhood home to go and grieve a mother he no longer recognizes. My nonfiction work centers around themes of early parental loss, adult sibling loss, and disability. I have been published in the Globe and Mail, the Evansville Review, Modern Loss, Mother's Always Right, and Motherwell Online Magazines. Prior to pursuing the Creative Writing Certificate through the University of Toronto, I wrote and self-published two women's fiction novels. The first chapter of Saved was submitted as a final assignment in a breakout fiction course, where the instructor, Bianca Murray, advised me to save drafts of every email, text message, journal entry, and to-do list, providing the perfect inspiration for this book. Thank you for your time, Gina. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. And it's so lovely when we get submissions from my former students from many years ago when I was teaching at U of T. Hi, Gina. Okay, Cece, could you give us a word count on that? It was a bit long, I think, and give us your take on it. Yes, so this is at around 420 words. It did feel long, but I also understand that the author is trying to tackle some pretty big plot points of, you know, a son discovering everything that happened with with his mother's life. So I think it would be fine to keep it at 400 words if that's needed. I think it's more about using every word in the most efficient way possible. And that is what my notes will be centering around. So I will begin by saying, and I've said this before on the podcast, I am not typically drawn to epistolary stories only because I am a huge fan of knowing what's going on inside someone's head. And it's really difficult to do that in epistolary form. That being said, there have been exceptions. The Divorce Papers is one of my favorite novels, and that's epistolary. So it can be done. I would also, again, still talking about the first paragraph, I would not lead with the themes. We have a sentence that reads, Saved explores themes of regret, shame, and ultimately parental forgiveness. Start with the hook, not the themes. It's something we've covered before. I understand that the themes are super important. And please know you will be using those themes when you talk about your book in interviews and such. It's just not the time for it yet. I'm not sure that this would fit into the story. But a way to elevate this is to explain that something about his mother's transplant was surprising to him. Perhaps even the fact that she had a transplant. But if you're 10, when your mother has a transplant, and I know this based on the pages, sometimes you don't know actually what's going on. Sometimes all you know is mommy has to go to the doctor. So right now, all I'm getting from the query letter is he realizes he knows very little about her donor. To me, that's not very plausible that that would be surprising to him. Because I don't think that most adult children know about the donor 
I don't even know what organ it was. So that's another question I have. Is that intentional that we don't know? There's also, he connects the pieces of the puzzle that was missing and unearths a landmine that blows up his world. There are lines like shattered by his mother's betrayal. And I'll be totally honest. I didn't understand why, why he thought this was a betrayal towards him because he was a child when this happened. He discovered why his mother never told her about her deceased organ donor. I don't think any mother would tell any child. I think that's normal. I think I'm missing something, honestly. So I think it's more that the plot paragraph is is bearing some type of super important information that I would have wanted to know. Maybe something that happened in their adult life that would have made sense for him to have these expectations. Maybe something about the transplant that's a bit more detail than who the donor was. Because again, I don't think that's detail that anybody would get into. So I absolutely do understand, of course, that the truth about his biological father being something that she kept from him being incredibly shattering. But supposedly also the truth about the organ donor also messed with him. So I think that equating these two things is what confused me. And that's what got me thinking, wait, what? So either focus on the whole biological father aspect, which is absolutely something that would shatter a person's world, or explain to me a little bit more, elevate those elements in the story that would also make me understand why his mother's personal medical history, I suppose, feels like something that he should have known about. Really loved the author paragraph. And yeah, it's a really interesting concept. I was excited to read the pages. Thank you, Cece. Okay, can you give us a take of what was in those opening pages? So we start with an email from Noah to five different people saying that a foundation put forth a request that he write about his mother's successful transplant. We do find out that we're talking about a liver transplant. And you know, at the end of the email, he's saying things like, who was mom's liver donor? How did they get matched? How did the donor die? Then we have an email from Ruth. It's one of the people he wrote to responding to this. Ruth is is not typing the email. She's using voice to text. And so it's full of little errors, but that's intentional. We have a note found in Dennis's file folder dated January 6th. I believe this is January 6th, 2020 and not 2021 because that would make it very different. Then we also have medical records dated January 7th, 2020 by a doctor who was essentially like dictating medical notes based on the patient's visit and the patient is Dennis. And then you have towards the very end, WhatsApp messages from Tess and Dennis. It's really hard to summarize epistolary. That's what I'm discovering today. And in terms of, okay, so here's what I thought. First of all, this needs to be double-spaced. The emails are super long. The text messages don't, but the emails are super long. And if they're not double-spaced, it's going to hurt the agent's eyes when the agent is reading this, right? Like, not just me. I think I speak for all agents. Our eyes are tired. Please, please double-space this at least 1.5. I understand why you didn't because it's an email, so it's totally different. But again, because the whole novel is going to be based on emails, I do think it's important. I don't understand. I want to talk about plausibility because that's where my big picture notes fall under. One. Why would a foundation reach out to him to write about his mother's transplant? It feels once removed, right? Like he's not the one who went through the transplant. His mother's already dead. Why was it that big of a success story? Coincidentally, yesterday after reading the submission, I actually saw the cover of a newspaper and there was a breakthrough transplant where the donor was actually already deceased. And because that was such a medical breakthrough, it made the cover of the newspaper. So if it was a situation like that, something that was medically completely unprecedented, then I would, of course, understand. But that's not explained to us. There's no information on that. I don't understand what made it such a success story. 
So I'm not buying that the foundation would reach out to him. It just feels like the author needed him to go on this journey to find out the truth about the transplant. So she wrote this in and it's just not believable to me. It's fine that a foundation would reach out, but only if there's a good reason. And I'm not seeing a good reason. There's also Noah sharing. I'm not sure why I never asked more about the whole transplant thing as I got older or why mom and Dennis never shared much about it. I think that's very reasonable. I think that when you're a kid and your mom goes through surgery, when you grow older, you go, oh my gosh, my mom went through surgery, especially if you've gone through a medical procedure. You go, okay, that's that's a big deal. And I never asked about it. But then his questions are, who was mom's liver donor? How did they get matched? How did the donor die? And that is a second plausibility note I have. I'm not buying it. I'm not buying that he would be focused on the donor. He would be focused on his mother, you know? He would be thinking about whatever story she told him, you know, mommy needs to go to the doctor or something like that, and trying to put those pieces of the puzzle together. The donor, while important, is not as important as thinking about his mom. So I think that's the big picture notes I have. This is very inventive, very fun. I'm excited to see where you're going to go with this. And thank you for sharing. Thank you, Cece. Yeah, in instances like that, when it comes to plausibility, if you want your character to be focusing on the donor, then something needs to have happened to have shifted their focus to the donor. Perhaps they get a mysterious email or mysterious letter from the donor or someone who the donor knows or something like that, that then focuses all their attention on the donor rather than the person they know. So plausibility just sometimes requires a bit of a shift in the author's mind in terms of how you present the information and how you explain why that is where the character's attention lies. Okay, Carly, will you read us the next query letter? Dear Ms. Waters, I follow you on various sites and I'm a voracious fan of the podcast. I'm sending along The Half-Wife, an own voices blend of women's fiction and romantic comedy. I like to call it henlit, related to the genre formerly known as chicklit, but with older and bolder chicks. It's set in the Asheville, North Carolina area, with parts featured in the Caribbean where I used to live. The half-wife is complete at 88,000 words, takes a popular trope, and gives it a double flip. It's the book that might happen if Bunmi Leighton had cocktails with an aging Bridget Jones. Six years ago, Jupiter Bexley, a disgraced flight attendant who loves ironing for stress relief, jeggings for firming effects, and helping those with disabilities for a career, made a staggering mistake. And it suddenly returned to bite her in the Spanx squeezed ass. That vile prenup. She shouldn't have signed it, but Lord, her big shot politician husband presented it hours before she said, I do, in a dress that cost more than a Kia. Now it's her 39th birthday, and she discovers two forged and outrageous amendments in the prenup. Almost overnight, her life plunges from flush to flushable, leaving her temporarily broke and slightly homeless. Feisty Jupiter yanks up her fabulous big girl jeggings and creates two quirky businesses. One is respectable enough. The other, a fake dating service that, God forbid, could send her down the aisle again. The half-wife uplifts and embraces those who have both mental and physical disabilities, showing the world the beauty of acceptance, understanding, and inclusion. My latest novel, The Beautiful Misfits, publishes with Regal House in spring 23. I am a Best Southern Fiction winner for my debut novel, Chimes from a Cracked Southern Bell, and the best-selling author of Not Tonight, Honey, Wait Till I'm a Size 6, published in a two-book deal with Kensington and a Book of the Month pick. Thanks so much for your consideration, Susan Gambrell Reinhardt. Wonderful, Carly. Okay, what was your take on that? And what was the word count? 
Okay, so our word count on this one coming in around 318. So I think that's a that's a really good length here. So I really like this title, The Half-Wife. I think this is a very interesting title because normally you don't kind of split yourself in half or you're not like half a wife, right? You're either kind of a wife or you're not. So I really liked this title. This is a very curious title, which I think is, is really strong. Okay, so now I just want to get to my notes. So I just want to mention about own voices. I think we've spoken about this before, but in terms of a term, it's pretty much retired. I wouldn't be using the term own voices anymore. So if you know, if you have any questions about that, just do a Google search and you'll get all your answers. But just as a note, I would retire that. And so this henlet genre formerly known as chiclet business. So I I like the term henlet. Like I could get behind this term, like you know, if it catches on. But as it stands, like not a thing right now. Genre formerly known as chiclet. Obviously, you know, this is very formerly at this point. You know, we're talking like early two thousands. So so yeah, I'm like I'm trying to get a sense of what's happening in terms of the genre. I really think that comps just could have done a better job of accomplishing all of this. We have like an Agent Bridget Jones kind of situation here that's just so old at this point. I don't even want to do the math on like how old Bridget Jones is because that will make me feel old. So yeah, I'm just trying to figure out like what this author thinks is old, right? So so this character's 39, like I'm 35, right? So I'm like, this character's four years older than me. And we're positioning this as like, I don't know, she's like being put out to pasture or something like that. So this whole like positioning of like how we imagine women when they become quote unquote old it's really interesting to me. So I'm trying to like wrap my head around the positioning a little bit. And as I said, I think comps that work a little bit better here would just be a much more kind of effective tool to communicate this. And so, and then, so this bit about like, it takes a popular trope, gives it a double flip. And then, so it's the book that might happen if this meets that. So really we have no idea what the book is about, right? We don't have the hook. We don't have like any sort of lead kind of coming into this. So whatever this trope is, we have no idea what it is yet. Right. And so i just feel like we're all you're doing is like pushing the good content down the page when we do stuff like this. So, so we don't know what the book is about. Now, I think what I find complicated about this pitch is that I don't know a better word kind of to explain this, but it's almost like the, like the branding and like the positioning of this book is so, is so confused because we have everything from disgraced flight attendant who's very into jeggings, which is a fashion choice that we will discuss. <laughs> and then we have her like, you know, helping those with disabilities for our career. Like I'm not saying somebody has to be all one thing and like very predictable, but in terms of a pitch, like I have to be able to wrap my head around who this character is. And then we have her like super rich politician husband and then we have a couple product placements here like IKEA so I'm like okay so if you're talking about like being rich would you talk about the car that's IKEA like do big shots drive Kias you know what I mean like I'm just trying to really figure out how to get this book in a lane and there's just so much that's like loud and noisy around this when I just really want to have a really clear picture of what's going on and, and how I can wrap my head around this so Okay, as I said, we're going to come back to the jeggings bit here. So when we talk about fashion, we date ourselves, right? Immediately. Like there's just so much about fashion that doesn't doesn't transcend fiction because it just doesn't make it timeless. And it's not that all books have to be timeless, right? But when we make choices that name brands or name, you know, certain fashion choices, we're really rooting ourselves in a certain point in time. And we can't 
separate one from the other. So when I think about jeggings, I think about like the height of skinny jeans, right? And again, we, we keep coming back to things that are like these comps and these fashion choices. We're talking like early 2000s, mid 2000s, right? And so there's just so much about this book that I'm like, is this happening now? Is it clear enough that this book needs to be written now, you know, in terms of the year? And, and when we get to the pages, I'll let you know a little bit more kind of about the time period and that sort of thing. Okay. And and so with this bit about the two businesses now. So number one, why does she need two businesses? And what is the other business? Like, what are these businesses? So I just think the hook's being a bit buried here in terms of what is the most exciting thing about this book. There's some vague bits about, yeah, like what what is this non-respectable other business that you've created? That's that is a lot of questions for me. So yeah, I just I just feel like there are so many like little nuggets here that are so interesting. But as a whole, I'm really not sure what road we're driving down. And I just really want to be a lot more clear about that. And then in terms of the author bio, you were a book of the month pick. That's super cool. So congratulations on that. That's a really awesome career milestone. So well done. Wonderful, Carly. Okay, what was in those opening pages and what was your take on them? All right, so we open with a timestamp. Chapter 1, April 12th, 2022. So we we start with a list. So it says, so our first thing is non-shallow goals before turning 40. And we have a list. And then we have our shallow goals before turning 40. And then we get into kind of this character's life. So it's her birthday. So she's talking about her birthday. So today I'm turning 39. So we're talking to the audience in first person. She's deciding what to wear. She's talking about her jeggings and how she calls her fashion forward friend. Talking about are jeggings cool or not cool. And then she gets the answer that they are not cool. So we get the sense that she is plus size. She says, I'm a little curvy, don't like the term plus size. So we're kind of getting a, a sense of who she is and what she looks like. She says she makes it through her work day and then she gets on her e-bike and she is climbing a mountain on her e-bike and then she gets to a house. It is a large house and she is noticing that someone is working on her lawn, doing kind of like gardening, yard work. We find out that it's kind of her nemesis. Her name is Tabitha. I think if I'm reading this correctly, she is the ex-wife of her husband who also does her lawn care. So that was an interesting little, little twist there. And then we find out through the ex-wife gardener character that her husband is going to be running for Congress. And so that was news to her. So that's our opening pages. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay. What did you think of them? Okay. So as I said, timestamp 2022. And and then, so another thing I just want to note for the author is that later in the book, later in these pages, you say it's now 2023. So I just want to make a note of that just so you know, like on one page, it says 2022 and one page, it says 23, just for your sake. I'm always really interested in when books are kind of contemporary because there is this over overhanging kind of pandemic that has loomed in our lives the past few years. So I'm always curious. I'm like, okay, if a book is contemporary, how are we going to kind of handle this? Anyway, that's always just a question in my mind. Now, this list, non-shallow goals before turning 40 and then our shallow goals before turning 40. So the most important thing here is that we do not know how old this character is currently. So if we're coming to this cold, it could be like, is our character 25? Is our character 39? As we find out, right? So how old this character is now frames how we evaluate these lists, these turning 40 lists. So I think that that to me, you know, without context, I just think this could have been handled a bit more interestingly in scene as opposed to like a list. 
So that's just a note there. Of course, I think this author knows how superficial these lists make this character appear, right? So non-shallow goals, we're framing them as the opposite of shallow, meaning like shallow is our baseline. And then we have our shallow goals, right? So there's just a lot of questions in terms of the list. So the non-shallow goals are finish master's degree in rehabilitation counseling, raise tons of money for those with disabilities during the July Lit Wits Gala, control temper 24-7, learn to drive, question mark, question mark, question mark, forgive self for what happened at 15, non-negotiable. So it feels like you're baiting the reader here, right? You're just like, oh, here's uh, some information that the reader might want to know, especially this whole like forgive self for what happened at 15 bit. But a lot of this, again, just leans on the more superficial, like raise tons of money for those with disabilities. Like what kind of fundraiser is this for? Is this for research funding? Is this for a scholarship? You know what I mean? Like the framing of this is so just like skim level. You know what I mean? Where I just... I just feel like all this information could have been given to us in a more reader-friendly, more story-forward kind of way. Now, our shallow goals are buy big-ass statement earrings, posh Instagrammers say, are important after 40. So the word posh is used a couple times. Like, I understand, you know, our whole, like, Bridget Jones thing, like, chiclet thing. But if these characters aren't British, then they wouldn't be using the word posh. So that was a little bit of a question mark for me. There's a lot to unpack here. Like, one of the lines is, revamp marriage and have lots of yummy sex or any kind of sex, period. I'm like, there's a whole novel in that, like, that one line there, right? So there's so much to unpack. It says, rethink substantial love affair with jeggings. I mean... Were jeggings really ever in? Like, I'm just not over the jeggings bit here. So I don't know. I just feel like this could have just been communicated in a more story forward way, as I said. I think we have to think about like, what, how are we trying to bait the reader versus like, what's the best way to actually communicate this story? So the job, right? So it says like, oh, I managed to make it through my work day kind of without anything unusual happening. I think like knowing what somebody does for work or knowing what a character does for work is really interesting. So the fact that we glossed over the work, I think I would have loved to, to dive into that. And yeah, there's so many fun twists here. Like why is her husband's ex-wife gardening their house? And she was a former beauty queen and she's getting really dirty. So, you know, there's some interesting kind of character dynamics here. And I think there's a lot of, a lot of really interesting things to work through. And I like the fact that there's secrets being kept from her. The gardener ex-wife character knows more than she does about her own husband. I'm also really curious about why she drives an e-bike, like why she rides an e-bike and she lives in a mansion. I'm like, do you have very strong views about the environment? So anyway, there's a lot of seeds that are being planted here. Lots of interesting things. Great, Carly. Thank you. All right, Cece, let's go to your second query letter. Dear Cece, Carly, and Bianca, As an avid listener to the Shit No One Tells You About Writing podcast and a huge fan of Carly's webinars, I'm so excited to share my query letter with you today. P.S. Literary is my dream agency, so this opportunity means the world, and I'd like to thank you for the chance to incorporate your feedback into my query. My latest manuscript, Antiheroes, is a 70,000-word novel of upmarket fiction about relationships, how we form them, and how they form us. The twist is that the story focuses on the anti-heroes, the villains you see every day, instead of the storybook lovers we're used to spotlighting. My writing blends commercial humor with literary voice and a focus on unique, morally gray characters. This book would appeal to fans of Anxious People by Frederick Bachman, The Storied Life of A.J. Fickery by Gabrielle Zevin, 
and Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine by Gail Honeyman. Pamela Connors is not the hero of the story, or any other. Pam is, and probably will always be, an anti-hero. She's a Class D villain, making plenty of people cry as a nurse on the cardiac unit, but not committing any murders yet. It's just recently come to her attention that her heinous attitude might be holding her back professionally and personally. It's time to make a change. Joe Sullivan is a plumber by trade, an asshole by all other descriptions. He lives with and works for his father, an angry, abusive drunk. When his father's behavior escalates into drug abuse, Joe knows he's got to get out. Nick is a bartender with a list of names he can't tell you about. Let's just say you don't want to be on it, and if you saw Carl, his cook and right-hand man, you'd understand why. Nick is ready to abandon the list, but Carl disagrees. Their lives intersect at the bar where Pam and Joe just happen to be the last names on the page. Each confronted with a desire to change and an opportunity to do so, they'll have to decide if they should maintain the lifestyle they've been living or burn it to the ground, literally. Anti-heroes are all around us, but only some are dangerous. The rest are just waiting for their stories to be told. I am a lifelong resident of the rural Maine coast. It's a beautiful setting for raising kids and a unique one for telling stories. As a dental hygienist for 12 years, I love including funny, real-life anecdotes from my practice and my time as a resident of a quaint coastal town. You can always expect true-to-life characters and mental health representation in my stories. Brought to the page from experience. I'm currently hard at work on my fifth full-length manuscript since returning to fiction writing in 2020. Anti-Heroes will be my debut novel. Thank you for your time. May I send you the full manuscript? Best wishes, Bethany Williams. Thank you, Cece. Will you give us an indication of the word count and then your take on that? This is around 500 words, which is quite long, but I also understand that we're dealing with three points of view. In terms of my thoughts, all right, so let's start with the first query letter paragraph. I am not counting the really sweet paragraph that you talked about the podcast because I understand that that's just for us, right? Like you won't send that to agents. So I would use all caps when writing your title. Right now, anti-heroes, all we have is the capital A and it's not in italics or anything. So, you know, just for readability, make sure to put your title in all caps. That really helps. Same with other titles. I would use italics for that or also all caps if you want to. I just think it makes it easier to, to read. Let's talk about the plot paragraph. So first one question, which I will also talk about when we discuss the pages. I get that Pam is an unlikable character. I get that she is a villain. Okay, cool. But there's a reference to not committing any murders yet. Was that a joke or is that actually going to be a thing? Like, is she going to consider committing a murder or will she actually commit a murder? If it's the former, I would remove. Like, I just don't, I wouldn't joke about it because it makes it a completely different book and will lead to confusion. It's not because it's triggering for me. It's not because I'm offended by it. It's just confusing. If it is something, if it's actually a plot point, then we need plot development in the plot paragraph because right now I don't have that. And I'll get to that in a minute. The second thing I want to say is an anti-hero and a villain are two completely different things. And you are using the terms interchangeably. Is this intentional? I would not. I would strike villain and just say anti-hero if that's what they are, or just say villain if that's what they are. 
that's just something that I would do. Because storytelling wise, they are different things. An antihero is someone who does the right things for the wrong reasons, typically, whereas a villain is the antagonist of the story. Okay, so antiheroes are all around us, but only some are dangerous. The rest are just waiting for their stories to be told. This is, this is very interior. The plot paragraph is missing plot points. It's focusing too much on character traits. For example, the first three sentences on Pam are about her situation. The fourth is vague, recently came to her attention. And then after that, I'm not sure, like it's still character. It's still like she might have to change. So I'm not sure that I see an actual plot point and I don't know how her actions matter to the story. A great way to check to see if you have plot points in your novel is are the character's actions impacting the plot? And I don't see that here. It feels like three character descriptions. Descriptions of their character arc, descriptions of their character journey, which is super important for you to know as an author, but not quite what we are expecting in a query letter. So thank you for sharing. These are my notes. Thank you, Cece. Okay, what was in those opening pages? We have chapter one told from Pam's point of view, sort of. We'll get to that in a second. She's stomping into a coffee shop. The weather's really bad. This matters because she has a date. Her sister set her up with someone. She's not sure why her sister continues to try. Her younger sister, who she actually does not dislike as much, she dislikes her older sister. There's something that happened over a year ago. We don't know what that something is, but it's something that people blame her for. It is made very clear to us that Pam is not a very nice person. She's described as a class C villain, maybe class D, a witch, dark, bitter as weak old coffee. She sits down, she starts eating an apple, that draws attention because she's loud, and she continues to, to chomp at the apple, and then she chokes. We have a little bit of the second chapter, not all of it, and that's from Joe's point of view, also sort of. He is in his childhood bedroom. That's where he still lives, even though he's an adult. And he's listening to the soundtrack of his life, which is his father yelling obscenities. And he's essentially disassociating when that happens because it's really hard on him. The pages end with no adult, especially not one his size, should be afraid of a nasty little man like Joe Sr. But trauma does strange things to us. So that's what happens on the pages. Great, Cece. Thank you. Okay, what was your take on them? So I want to start by talking about linguistic calibration. The first line is Pamela Connors stomped into the coffee shop unrestrained like a tyrant about to exercise her absolute power and put a stop to the unseasonable rain by sheer force of her boots hitting tiles. Personally, I feel this seems exaggerated, right? Like a tyrant? Like absolute power? It removes any sense of earned emotionality. It just feels like too much. It's about the weather. Like, especially since the reason why the weather matters is the date. And then we find out she doesn't even care about the date. So I don't see why she would care at all. Another note is there's a reference to CNAs. I had to Google to find out that the initialism refers to certified nursing assistant. Maybe this is one of those things that everybody knows but me because those things exist, but I didn't know what it was. So I would just be careful with initialisms that people don't understand or acronyms too, in, in case of acronyms. I am unclear on how Pam feels about herself. And here's why. That's my first big picture note. This is omniscient. I figured it out because there are references to it. So for example, you might think ill of Pam for her prejudice, parentheses, as you should. She's awful, close parentheses. But in her mind, people had an obligation not to offend her delicate eyes. This is the storyteller talking to us, the reader directly. It's breaking the fourth wall. The problem is that this is creating a sense of removal. I don't know what's actually going on in Pam's head. I don't know if when you're describing her as a villain, she thinks of herself as a villain or not. The narrative style is really risky. I would do this third person close. 
omniscient is too hard to pull off, especially with this breaking of the fourth wall, especially when it's three different points of view. Again, I just think it's too risky. I wouldn't do it. It's obviously totally up to you. The scene, you'll notice when I described it, has no clear goal, obstacle, disruption that leads to tension, etc. As it stands, it's mostly interiority with us finding out that she is a bad person. I get that. I personally love unlikable characters, but they have to make sense. Their unlikability have to make sense. Pam's does not. She is described in caricature-esque terms. For example, a line that reads, Pam's personality would be best described as a feral cat alley meets constipated loan shark. And then she's described as a witch. And then she's described as a class C or maybe class D villain. I would rather have things like even generic, not generic, but even like big picture adjectives like cruel, impatient, arrogant. At least that's telling me something, right? As it stands, it feels just caricature-esque, which maybe is the intention. Maybe the the tone is really funny and I'm just not getting the tone. Maybe it's just not for me. But it just did not make her feel like a character. It made her feel like a caricature. And then the third big picture note about Pam is that, yeah, I get it. She's unlikable. That's awesome. But she still needs to be vulnerable. So for example, there's a reference here. And of course, this is meant to be not something the storyteller feels, something Pam feels. Pam hates fat people. She describes them as fat. She thinks they're awful. But the reason she hates fat people is because they offend her eyes. That to me is only a surface reason. I would have rather got got a line, like for example, they are lazy and Pam had to learn at an early age that being lazy led to, I don't know, something bad. Because that would make me go as a reader, oh, like someone made her this way. Her loss of innocence, her unlikability, it came from hard learned lessons. Someone hurt her and that's why she's so bitter as we cold coffee, as the author says. So I needed hints of vulnerability, not the whole story, but hints. Without hints, she just feels like a character. On Joe's chapter, he, I do understand his vulnerability. So it's there because his dad is horrible. That's actually a way of making a villain not so bad, putting someone that's even worse there. So perfect. You did a great job with Joe's vulnerability. What's not working for Joe's chapter for me is his interiority isn't believable. He's observing his dad yelling and that's what he's doing. Any child, any child who witnesses fighting like this becomes a human barometer. They can measure exactly the wavelength of the yelling and they can go, oh my God, that word means it's going to get worse or that word means it's not going to be as bad. And that response is going to make this escalation or it might lead to that thing. They can tell with specificity and that's what he would be doing. And if he is going to totally dissociate, fine, but then we need somewhere else that his mind is going. So it's not just us finding out about the yelling without any other information. Thank you, Cece. Okay, Carly, will you read us the last query letter? All right, here we go. Dear Carly, I'm one of those diehard fans who listens and re-listens to the shit no one tells you about writing during my rainy morning daily walks here in the Pacific Northwest. Your tips help me tremendously and your encouragement is consoling. Thank you for the support you give me and all the other writers working hard for that one yes. My 72,000 word novel, An Impulse of Light, is an upmarket fiction with elements of intrigue and romance, as well as touching on the issue of homelessness. When 23-year-old Rice Olson spots his mother who vanished 15 years ago, he yearns to find her but is torn because an offer for his dream job is contingent on returning to Hollywood. An Impulse of Light has a tone similar to Kristen Hanna's The Great Alone and a plot reminiscent of Liam Moriarty's Apples Never Fall. 
While Rice Olson's job as a paparazzo is not esteemed, he excels and is thrilled when it leads to an offer of work on the set of a Tarantino film. Grunt work, yes, but the start in the industry. When he flies to Seattle, his hometown, to collect his dad's ashes from prison, he spots his mom, but it can't be true. She vanished without a trace 15 years ago. Now he is torn, wondering whether returning to Hollywood to a job, which will prove to the world and to himself that he's not worthless scum like his dad, or to search for his mom, his only living relative. Two women who are like ants offer to help Rice's search. Megan, recently healed from heartbreak, and Larissa, a depressed empty nester. After pursuing several avenues, old neighbors, detectives, social media, the library, Rice wonders if he is mistaken. Maybe he never saw his mom, and maybe his dad killed her years ago. He considers that the woman he saw quite disheveled, possibly homeless. Rice encounters a wealthy donor, Scott Crowley, who helps people who live on the streets. Scott is Megan's ex-love, who never stopped loving her. He offers to help search for Rice's mom, with hopes of reigniting Megan's passion. Rice's film job is delayed, and he, Megan, Larissa, and Scott comb homeless encampments throughout Seattle. Rice begins to view his mom's disappearance as abandonment. Family secrets are revealed, and festered relationships are sorted in this story of love, romance, and mostly forgiveness. My memoir, A Long Way from Paris, was named an Independent Kirkus Best Book of the Year. My short story, The Urban Gothard, received a Pushcart Prize nomination. And my mystery novel, An Unfamiliar Guest, is a popular book club choice. I founded writersconnection.org, a website on which we post resources, publications, and author Q&As, as varied as Eric Larson and Debbie McElmore. I studied creative writing at the University of Washington, Hedgebrook, and Stony Brook, Southampton, and earned a master's degree in social work. My home is on Tiny Fox Island, west of Seattle, where my husband and I raise our daughter, cat, and twin puppies, and now watch families of deer manicure our shrubs. Would you like to read An Impulse of Light? Many thanks, Elizabeth Kurokin Murray. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Okay, what was the word count there and what was your take on that? Well, I will say, I think this might be the longest query letter we've had on the podcast in months. I think this one came in around 527. So I think we're, I think this might take the, the prize since we started counting. Okay, so gosh, I don't know where to start here. So I think I want to start with, I think I'm just gonna start with the hook part. So the concept here, right? Like, the fact that he has to make it back for this job. I think what I really need here is more of a time crunch, right? Like he has five days to make it back and, you know, get the ashes and make it back to set because it's a bit meandering here, which makes it seem more literary to me and not at market. I personally am not seeing the comp kind of connection here. So I'm, I'm, I don't know if we need comps that are a bit more kind of Hollywood centric or something like that. Like The Great Alone. Oh my gosh, great book. But I'm just not seeing because that's a historical novel set in Alaska, right? And I know there's there is a Pacific Northwest connection, but I'm just not really seeing that there. And then mentioning Tarantino, like I don't know if you could mention Tarantino like that. I don't want his lawyers to come after you. So I don't know. Don't know. That's a question mark for me. And so I think the most interesting part of this pitch to me was the fact that his dad might have killed his mom like what it says maybe he never saw his mom and maybe his dad killed her years ago like is that why he's in prison I just feel pulled in two different directions like is this a book about this character and their career or is this book about 
this meandering kind of path backwards to find their history. Like it can be both. I'm not saying that it can't. It's just it's not clear in the query letter like where I should be devoting my emotional energy. And so that's just a question mark for me. I would cut, I mean, I made a note here for for a bunch of things to kind of cut so the author can see and everybody who donates to the Kofi will be able to see my notes here so we can kind of get into what I think should be trimmed. And I love that there's a call to action at the bottom. Like, would you like to read an impulsive light? I love calls to action, right? So I think that's that was a great job there. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, what was in those opening pages? Okay, so we start with a very short chapter one. It's only about kind of 10 lines long where we have an interchange between a man and I think a woman, Charlotte and Brent, but it's very unclear. It says something about like, this person's going away for the weekend, it says, but my husband, he'll kill me. And he says, you'll be fine. And off she went. But it wasn't just for the weekend and she was never fine again. So a bit of an ominous start there. Then we jump to chapter two with our main character here, Rice, Seattle 2018. So he is kind of, he's in Seattle. He is on a bus. We understand that he has his father's ashes in like a package that looks like, like a UPS type of package. And then he's on the bus and he thinks he sees his mom. So he's like, oh my God, I got to get off the bus, like screaming, gets off the bus, stress. There's a lot of tension here, running around downtown Seattle, trying to find his mom. And then he looks down and the package with his dad's ashes has a rip in it. And then his ashes are now scattered all over downtown. Wow. Okay. That's, that's compelling. Okay. So what was your take on that, Carly? All right. Yes. I love that ending. That is, that's my favorite part of these pages. So yeah, so our little chapter one here, I really kind of feel like this needs to be longer. Like it's essentially a prologue, the scene between Brent and, uh, and Charlotte, which we assume is the dad and the mom, but we don't really obviously get any names here. I don't know. We're, as I said, I have no idea what's going on. So I would just make that a little bit more clear, spend a little more time there to kind of make sure that the reader gets it or we just take it out. Right. So I think there's there's a good amount of description in terms of like what Seattle looks like and feels like and, and what we're, you know, the weather and everything like that. So I have some notes about some things to kind of cut. But overall, the tension here, right, it's like, okay, he thinks he sees his mom. He's like yelling to get off the bus. And then the only part I'm a bit confused about is he says he's wearing Gore-Tex, which is like, obviously, you'd wear some some clothing items that are going to protect you from the Seattle weather. But then he says he's like sweating. So I'm like, is it cold? Is it hot? Like what's going on here? And there's, there's a, there's a bit of an overuse of exclamation marks. I would definitely be combing through that. Most of the time we do not need exclamation marks in our, in our work. But yes, as, as Bianca said, I mean, incredible ending here. It says dad was now one long streak of ash in front of Nordstrom's flagship store with its ginormous windows filled with three swimsuit clad mannequins whose red painted smiles match their beach bags sporting the names of winter hotspots. Well, if dad could hope to end up under a sexy pink bikini, he sure got his wish. Like that's a great ending to a chapter. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you so much. Thanks to Carly and Cece for their critique this week. Let's go to today's guest. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, 
it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's episode is sponsored by mylifeinabook.com. This is probably the most thoughtful gift I've ever come across for parents or grandparents for the winter holidays as families get together to celebrate. It's a powerful way to connect emotionally with them, preserve their most precious memories, and show them that you really care. And best of all, it's an instantaneous gift. I've tried it with my own mother, Caroline, and she loved it. Every week, My Life in a Book lets you choose from a list of thought-provoking questions or even write your own that gets sent to your relative by email. Your relative writes their answer and can choose to add a meaningful picture. This happens every week and then at the end of one year, all their stories get combined into a beautiful keepsake book that can store your relative's memories forever and pass them on to future generations, which is printed and sent to you. You can request as many copies as you want and even get them in audio format as well. And you know how much we love audio content over here on the pod. With mylifeinabook.com, you can give 
those you love most, a personal gift that tells them they're meaningful to you and all future generations. To save $10 off your first purchase, use discount code ABOUTWRITING10. That's ABOUTWRITING10 to get $10 off mylifeinabook.com. We are so pleased to welcome Caitlin Barish. Caitlin, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thrilled to be here. So before we start our interview, I'd actually like to invite our listeners to do a little visualization exercise. I want you to picture Caitlin. This was years ago. This was late summer. She was at her apartment on the Upper West Side in New York City. And she was about to send her query letter to agents. But before she did that, because she knew that she had to take it very seriously, she wrote a template, a template query letter that she would then personalize to each agent. And she was proofreading that template. So picture Caitlin, and now let's hear her query letter. Hi. So yes, of course, I was uh, incredibly neurotic about making this as good as I possibly could. But it was such a fun exercise. I feel like query letters really help you articulate your own novel to yourself. So here we go. I wrote Dear Agent, but obviously I, I inserted the agent's names. Dear Agent, my name is Caitlin Barish, and I'm a recent graduate of New York University's MFA program. I'm querying you because in this example, you're seeking twisty, female-driven upmarket fiction. Complete at just over 80,000 words, a special skill is narrated by Naomi, a young woman cultivating an obsession with Rosemary, her boyfriend's ex. Using social media, as well as their shared love of books, Naomi inserts herself into Rosemary's life and even becomes her friend. As their relationship develops, Naomi is determined at all costs to write a book about it. Through a series of increasingly murky deceptions, Naomi manipulates the most important people in her life, boyfriend, family, friends, Rosemary, and perhaps most devastatingly, herself in a search for validation and fulfillment. In its exploration of escalating obsessions, a special skill may be reminiscent of Tara Isabella Burton's social creature, and in its portrayal of the dangerously blurred line between literature and life, Andrew Martin's early work. During my MFA, I studied with Jonathan Safran Foer, Katie Kitamura, Hannah Tinty, and David Lipsky. My work has been published or is forthcoming in Catapult Day One, Hobart, The Forge, I go on, I name a few more places. Then I write, I've pasted the first 10 pages below for your consideration. Thank you for your time. Best, Caitlin. So that was my first whack at it. That was really good. Now, listeners, you might be thinking to yourself, wait, hold on, I can't find this book. That's because the title changed, as did other things, and we'll get to that. But before I ask Caitlin about the revision process, I want to ask about your process you know, how did you find your agent? How did that meet cute happen? Yeah. Tell us all about it. Absolutely. So I had a fun and sort of random journey to publication and to finding an agent. And while my story might not exactly be incredibly relatable for many of you, I feel like the journey that led me to finding my agent is. So essentially I finished my novel and my MFA program in late, like actually mid 2019. I was really proud of it. I was excited about it perhaps too excited about it because I went ahead and started submitting it to agents before it was fully ready. I felt like I, you know, in my naivete and excitement thought it was as good as it could possibly be, which is probably relatable to some of us. And so I started sending it out 
just to a small sampling of people that I had heard about through my MFA program. So people I'd actually met during like a pitch day at NYU, which they had set up for us, which was very generous and useful. Started sending out to that sort of small circle of people, received my first full request 24 hours after I sent my first query, which was quite the whirlwind, very unexpected. I probably ran around the house, you know, in ecstatic circles with the full request and then sent it off. And actually a full week later, I received an email from that agent saying she wanted to set up a call with me and that she was really excited about the book, but had some reservations and would just love to discuss them with me on the phone. So once Ooh, again, I'm I probably- I'm sensing a plot twist. I'm yeah. sensing a plot twist here. There I'm was. That this is not going to be a linear story. Am I right? Not at all linear. I, I feel like there were so many moments of whiplash throughout my own process where I was like off to the races thinking that everything was going to work out one way and it ended up being completely different than I'd expected. And with hindsight, I feel like it worked out exactly as it was supposed to. But at the time, I so I got on that phone call a week later with that agent, you know, was so nervous. Like my hands were sweaty. I was pacing my household because I I, I sort of need to pace to calm myself down. The amazing thing about, about talking to an agent on the phone for the first time is that they will sing your praises for the first few minutes of the call and you will feel like the absolute best writer in the world. And then they bring you down to earth slowly and gently. And in this case, she sort of let me know that she had some thoughts about where the book needed work. And also this was the kicker. She thought the book could be a more of a thriller, had, could be more like just darker, more plot twists. And that was something that I was really unsure about at first. Like on the one hand, I was so thrilled to even be speaking to an agent on the phone that my first instinct was to be like, yes, I'll do whatever you want, you know, sign me, let's do this. Let's be, let's be married, you know, essentially. And the other part of my brain was wondering, hmm, like, let's slow it down. Let's really think about what my intentions are here, the kind of book that I set out to write initially. And sometimes it could have been the case that this agent just saw my book more clearly than I even did. And that was the case in so many other ways, which I'll get to later. So I really had to know, like, is this agent just hitting something really essential about my book that I haven't seen yet? Or do I really need to ask myself, like, what I want the book to be in its final form and its best version? After a lot of sort of back and forth, she was incredibly generous with her time. I'm still so thankful for that for that time in my life and for her thoughts. But eventually it just turned out that we were not the right match, that the book that she wanted me to write was not the book that I wanted to write. And so we kind of very amiably decided that we would not work together. And I set out to just perform this very intense revision on the second half. How long did it take you to figure out that this was not the book that you wanted to write? Because I love what you said about slowing down and figuring yes. out your intention. That is mm. hard to do because your intuition can sometimes sound like your anxiety. Like 100%. how long did it take you to figure that out? Yeah. I, well, it, I would, I wish I could say that it, that I did it on my own, that I figured it out on my own, but I actually like sat down with a bunch of my writer friends. I sat down with my family and my partner. And I was thinking to myself, like based on everything, cause I'd been talking about this book for years with them and so excited about it and excited about its possibilities. And they could just tell by something in my voice that I wasn't thinking about turning it into a thriller for myself. As exciting as that would have been, I think it would have been an equally interesting book, but probably just not my book anymore. So I think I just had to have a lot of come to Jesus moments with the people in my life where they were sort of picking up on maybe a little bit of hesitation in my voice and in my overall behavior. And they kind of helped guide me to 
as you said, patience, having patience, knowing that this was just the first of hopefully many other people that would read the book, have thoughts on it, and that I didn't have to leap at the first person who gave me attention, as wonderful as she was. And like I said, I, I, I can't, I have no way of knowing what that book would have looked like, but I had to sort of forge ahead with my instinct, which was, I think this book is about psychology. The suspense lies in the psychology of the characters and not in like the piling up of dead bodies and not in the like absolute red herrings. And so I, I really needed to, to figure that out on my own. It took me about two months, I think, to really stop trying to turn it into something that it wasn't. And that was really liberating actually, because it, it allowed me to sort of choose to write the book I, I knew I wanted to write and that I'd set out to write all along. And I had some help along the way. I think I spoke to about three other agents over that period who all gave me similar advice on the second half, on how the second half was falling short, on how the stakes weren't clear, on how the why of my narrator's behavior wasn't quite gelling for them. And as you know, frustrating it is to hear the same advice over and over again, it was also incredibly educational because I thought if all these smart women are saying the same thing about the book in different ways, I should listen. <laughs> and I did. And I ended up revising for several months, like about four months on my own before finally sending it back out. And this is where there was another plot twist. Essentially, the agent that I ended up signing with actually read a short story of mine during the period in which I was revising my novel. I was also working on short stories, submitting short stories. And I had a, a, a short story published in a literary journal called The Forge. And the story didn't really have anything to do with my novel, but they probably shared similar themes, my similar voice, similar style. This agent happened to stumble upon it out on the internet, and she emailed me and asked to see my novel. And literally 10 days later, she offered me representation. Wait, and how did she know you had a novel? Did she ask? Or I think it was in I think it was in my bio. <laughs> I think ah. my bio is like, Caitlin is... Uh, you know, has published short fiction in such and such journals and is currently working on a novel. I wanted to make that really loud, that part, in hopes that this entirely unexpected thing would happen. I had no hope that an agent would reach out based on reading a short story. But I You know plotted your meet cute with your agent. <laughs> I, I love that. that I did. Best. Yeah. And, ooh, and so this is the, the even crazier part that is even more of a meet cute is that as it turns out, when my agent, when I responded to her email, I just remember recognizing her name and thinking, this is so crazy. I haven't seen her name in probably two decades, but it's ringing a bell. Turns out we went to middle school together and we were on the same soccer team in eighth grade. And then suddenly she became a literary agent. Suddenly I was a novelist and our meet cute and was officially complete. You you? Did she know she you were didn't, you? She didn't know when she reached out to me originally because I, to sort of separate church and state, separate personal and professional, I'm Katie in my personal life and Caitlin in my writing life. And so she knew me as Katie, which I always was when I was younger. And I was reaching out and publishing as Caitlin. She didn't put it together until I wrote back. And I was like, this is kind of awkward, but uh, I think that we know each other. <laughs> And then it was sort of this beautiful serendipity that really led me to choosing her in the end. Like I loved her feedback on my work. I loved what she said about it. I loved her vision for it. But I feel like just, I believe so much in signs and symbols. I feel like a lot of writers do. We're always looking for meaning in our lives and that's why we tell stories. And so the story of my agent and me really inspired me and made me decide. I think the universe is trying to tell me something about who I should work with. So I chose her and she sold the book with her co-agent, Wendy Sherman, 
And it was just, this is Callie Dietrich and Wendy Sherman are my agents and they're wonderful. And they made all my dreams come true along with my editor, Lexi Casola. So that is sort of like the beautiful, happy ending of, of that novel. <laughs> I love that story so much. All the coincidences, right? Like, I feel like if this were a novel, we'd be like, is it too much of a coincidence that they would know each other in middle school? So then we'd have to work on the interiority to make sure that it didn't feel coincidental. And this is where we just see that these things do happen in real life. And I love it. Okay, so you've sold the book. You're now working with Lexi, the amazing Lexi. Tell us about that process. How collaborative was it? How much did the book change? How many editorial rounds did you go through? Were there any notes that kind of freaked you out? Were there any notes that you went, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. Anything that you guys had to do it back and forth on? We want to know all the details. So Lexi, yeah, I really lucked out with her. Um, I think we went about three rounds of revision. The first was quite heavy in the sense that I think we worked for about two to three months on that first round. Basically a month after I sold the book to Dutton and Lexi, Lexi sent me her editorial letter, which is about three pages long with sort of her big picture notes and also her small picture notes, scene work, character work, and praise as well. Cause I think she probably knew that I would be reeling cause we writers are fragile. <laughs> so in between all of her thoughts for improvement, she managed to also stroke my ego a little bit, which was helpful. But essentially, you know, after kind of reading her editorial letter several times, sitting with it, thinking about it, I realized she was basically correct in every aspect of that letter. And I really agreed with everything she said and sort of was even more glad and grateful to have found that relationship, to have been chosen by her in that regard. And so our first letter was really actually focused on making Naomi, my narrator, more palatable to an audience. We talk a lot about unlikable female narrators. That's sort of this interesting conversation that's been happening for several decades now, I feel like, because obviously we've had unlikable male narrators for centuries, but no one ever really describes them as such. Whereas if a woman is behaving badly, is making mistakes, we hate them on sight. And I feel like that's all of our internalized misogyny that we're meant to sort of look at, each, at one another as competition or as people to sort of scorn. But I think on the one hand, I really wanted to make Naomi flawed, complex, complicated, but I didn't, I didn't really set out to make her likable or unlikable. I was, I was sort of trying to get out of that binary somehow, which is difficult. But I think what Lexi helped me do, which I think was really wise of her, is just to make sure that Naomi, in her moments of making terrible mistakes and of being morally flawed, she wanted to make sure the audience at least was, was understanding, and by the audience, I mean the readers, were understanding where she was coming from and, and why she felt the way she did and why she felt like her decision to act upon this flaw of hers was the only way that she could see herself moving forward. So essentially it was making her character coherent, her psychology coherent, and letting us root for her a little bit more than perhaps they already would have been. In the sense is like this, my book isn't for everyone as every book is not for everyone, but I, I just really wanted to show a woman who's struggling, struggling to be good, struggling to live up to her own expectations for herself, struggling to live up to others' expectations for her and how she kind of tripped all over all of those expectations and, and made so many mistakes. But I like to think of off the page somewhere, if she exists out in the world, this idea of her for me, that she's learned her lessons and is trying to be better. And yeah, and I think Lexi really helped me understand how I needed to balance her. And I hope that answers your question. Yeah, it does. So I want to go back to something you said. You said 
when you decided not to pursue the thriller version of this, mm-hmm. you said that you thought the suspense lived in the psychology, which is yeah. how I felt when I read your book. I I very much, I was drawn to it because of the premise. It felt toxic and twisty and obsessive. And it also felt very female forward because even though we do have a the premise, I'm sure everyone knows this by now because you've looked it up, but the premise is our protagonist finds out that her boyfriend's ex lives in New York City. Since her boyfriend is not from the States, she had assumed that his ex was in a totally different continent. But no, she lives in New York City. He moved to America for her. And she's like, wait, hold on. So you have an ex who lives here? That kind of changes things. And then she finds out that she that this woman works in publishing and the protagonist is an aspiring writer. So she becomes obsessed with this woman and starts following her. And it's way more complicated than that. But speaking specifically of this premise, a woman obsessed with another woman, I was obsessed because I love stories like that. However, we talk a lot about, like here in the podcast and in publishing, about the challenge of writing what appears to be a quiet novel, when the suspense lives in the psychology, as opposed to plot points, as opposed to dead bodies or what have you, a lot of the times it can be really hard to place that book. In my opinion, one of the reasons why your book is not a quiet novel at all is because her interiority is so, so alive. And there's that. And It's written so tightly on a scene level. There's never any scene where she's just sitting around stream of consciousness, just info dumpy. She's always doing something, even if that something is just following and observing her boyfriend's ex. So the question is, how do you write so tightly on a scene level? Any tips for our readers? Because we get a lot of like so-called quiet submissions on books with hooks. So they're going to want to know. They're going to want to know all your secrets. Yeah, no, it's a really good question. And and it's a question I asked myself a lot as I was drafting this novel, because actually, so the first chapter of my novel, which is literally the same as it was when I wrote it in 2016, is just Naomi standing on a street corner waiting for her boyfriend's ex, Rosemary, to leave her building. She follows her down the street, follows her around to a train, follows her off the train nearly to her doorstep, and then kind of stops herself in that moment. And I think having written that first chapter and having lived within that first chapter for so long, that sort of set the tone for my entire book in the sense that everything she's doing is, as you say, observing, watching, making connections, making associations, thinking about what she's seeing, but she is in motion the entire first chapter. And that was really useful to me because actually the writer that I was before this novel was someone who I imagine would be writing quiet novels. I'm a big fan of two people sitting in a room talking because I think that dialogue and interpersonal relationships can be explosive and they don't, I don't care where they are and what they're doing, but two people talking can captivate me. But what I ultimately instinctually did to help myself write forward was to keep Naomi in motion constantly, as you mentioned. And I don't know if that was indeed intentional on my part with that first chapter, But when I brought that first chapter to my writing groups, to my MFA program, on the one hand, I was incredibly embarrassed about the premise. It is very hard to tell people that you want to be friends with that you're writing a novel about stalking someone because then they're like, who am I dealing with here? (laughs) Um, So I was really actually quite anxious about about taking this novel seriously and and showing it to people. And nine times out of 10 or even 10 times out of 10, because I feel like even if there one person had said, this is crazy, you're crazy, I would have been devastated and never touched it again. But 10 times out of 10, people were like, this is the this is the stuff that people don't say out loud. These are the, the lines that we don't cross that we wish we could. 
and they encouraged me to keep going. And the best advice I got from peers and from professors was to continually escalate. And I think, like you said, there can be an escalation in the mind. One can sort of fall apart internally, and that could be an escalation. But I wanted to escalate the levels of this obsession. So a lot of obsession novels start on social media, and they sort of stay on social media. You see people obsess over someone's images for 200 pages with one final like explosive scene, perhaps out in the real world. I've read several novels like that. And I admire those novels, but it wasn't the novel I wanted to write. I wanted to write about what happens when we do take things offline, because so rarely do we actually do that because there's so much online for us to to obsess over that it's not always necessary. You can have a parasocial relationship entirely on your screen, but I thought it'll be way more fun to literally make my character follow her down a street and onto a train. So escalation, escalation is my answer to that question, always figuring out what crazy thing could she do next? And that was a question I kept asking myself with every chapter, because I wanted every chapter to not feel stagnant, for something new or weird to happen that either made her feel like, okay, I might be losing control here, or something to make her feel like, okay, I'm finally sort of taking this to a new level, and I'm absolutely not going to get caught. Well, of course, the sort of overriding anxiety that a reader has is, oh my God, of course she's going to get caught. But I just had to really keep asking myself, how can I make this weirder and crazier? And I think as a question, I think that's a great question to ask all of us, even if it's just, how can I make this character's situation crazier and weirder and worth writing about, even when it's not a stalking situation? I love it. Always be escalating. I'm (laughs) going to write that down. Okay. I want to ask about professions now because Naomi is a writer and Rosemary is a, an editor at a publishing house and Caleb does something with numbers. I honestly forget what Caleb does because I did not like, it's not that I didn't care about him. It's just that he is not the point of the story. The point of the story is Naomi and Rosemary, which is why I love it so much. But how did you figure out their professions? Were they ever different? And like adjacent to that, a lot of editors tell us, tell us agents. And so we tell a lot of our listeners at Books with Hooks that it's really hard to sell a novel where the protagonist is a writer. Now, I have a theory as to why. My theory is because a lot of debut authors, meaning people who have never been published, write characters who are already established authors. And because they don't know what that's actually like, there's no authenticity on the page. That That's just my theory. No one's ever said this to me. No editor has ever given me this explanation, but that is my personal theory. My question is, did you ever get any pushback about her being a writer? Did you ever get that advice that maybe you should do it? So I want to know about all the professions, but also about the writer. I actually think that's a great theory. And I do think that I've definitely gotten pushback because on the one hand, I even thought to myself, like, God, like I'm a writer writing about a writer who is writing a book. Like there are so many meta levels in my novel. And at certain points, I was definitely told that was going to be a turnoff for some people because it just is is so self-referential and might come across as indulgent. But I feel like as I kept exploring this book and kept exploring this character, she needed to be a writer because so much of what she does in her life is self-narrativized. She comes up with all of these stories about what people are like and, and how people's backstories inform who they are now. Like that's, she's constantly projecting onto Rosemary, onto her boyfriend, Caleb, imagining how their story is much more romantic and interesting and epic than her story with her boyfriend. So that compulsion to narrativize is so important to her that it made sense that she was a writer. But yeah, I I had several agents tell me, look, like if you make her not a writer, I'll, I will read it again. (laughs) Like I will take it more seriously. 
And again, when I was unagented, that was a tempting offer. But the more I really sat with it and thought, I feel that this book, she needs to be a writer. And of course, there's a version of this book where she isn't. But as some readers might know, if they have read this book or if they will read it, there is a plot twist where we find out that there's actually more than one writer in this book and that that will sort of up the stakes and and this artistic envy comes into play. And I am fascinated by that probably because I have had that lived experience. I have a ton of artistic envy, writers that I'm so happy to see succeed, but also feel that like horrible pit in my stomach when I see people achieving things I want to achieve. I imagine that's quite relatable for listeners. And so I wanted to explore that on the page because that's what I do. But to, to talk about Caleb's profession, I also had no idea how to write about that with any real detail because I also don't really care about numbers. I am historically terrible at math, but I thought given the fact that Naomi was shocked that Rosemary, aka her boyfriend's ex, was also a writer type or a literary type, I thought to myself, well, if Caleb, their boyfriend and ex-boyfriend, was also in the literary world, it wouldn't be that remarkable that he was dating two bookish girls. But to have, I think, Naomi was dating someone who was not bookish simply because she, on the one hand, I think wants to feel special, wants to feel put on a pedestal in some way. And maybe some of us can relate to the fact that when someone you're dating or someone you're really close friends with does something so different from you, you really admire them because you can't imagine doing what they do. And so there's a sort of mythology that accompanies that. And I wanted a lot of these characters to self-mythologize, mythologize others, come up with stories for who they are as people. Um, And for me, something that felt really unfamiliar, but also something I admire is people who work with computers, people who work with numbers, And so Caleb just had to be that guy in this book. And yeah, and I think Rosemary as an editor, Naomi as a bookseller, I wanted them to occupy the same industry, but be in very different, very different hierarchical positions within that. Even though I would argue that actually booksellers have a hell of a lot of power within the industry. And as a bookseller, as a former bookseller, I I know that intimately, but perhaps Naomi and her sort of delusions and in her insecurities, she imagines that because Rosemary might make more money than she does, that she is therefore more powerful. There's a brilliant line in your book that captures that essence. I'll I'll read it. Rosemary is lucky. She's salaried, dexterous, upwardly mobile, am hourly replaceable in need of a conventional structure and something to say when people ask what I do. All the invisible hours spent on my book aren't represented on any payroll. It's the dream life inside my life. So not only is that beautifully written, and I do want to ask you a question about writing on online level specifically, but before I do, I think the interesting thing here to me is that you managed to access her consciousness and her unconsciousness, because yes, these are the thoughts that are going through her head, and we understand why, because she's artistically envious of of Rosemary, but just plain envious and jealous, and like the competition, you know, one of the unfortunate side effects I guess of the patriarchy is that like if you say tell someone that you're obsessed with your boyfriend's ex we automatically understand why right even though again this is not actually about him but we understand why but even though these are the things she thinks about and these are the things that she feels she can defend logically Naomi actually has tons of privilege she's someone who has a great apartment in New York City she's someone who can afford to spend her time writing yes she also has you know her part-time job as as a bookseller but it's only something she does, not that she doesn't need it at all, but she is not in Rosemary's position where she works a nine to five. She doesn't have time to work at her art. So how did you 
how did you do that? How did you access consciousness and unconsciousness? Were you even aware that you were doing it? Thank you for, yeah, thank you for reading that. That's one of my favorite moments in the book. And I think it speaks later to a scene between the two women when they're discussing the things that they write. And Rosemary sort of points something out that really rattles Naomi. And it's exactly on that topic of Naomi's blind spots to her own privilege. She, she on the one hand, is very blatant about her privilege. Like she speaks directly to the reader at one point and says, yeah, I live for free in New York. How absurd is that? My parents are in real estate. My grandfather inherited, we inherited a lot of money from my grandfather is what she tells the reader. So on that sense, she, yeah, she's upwardly mobile in so many ways. She has a cushion to fall back on if her current dreams don't work out. Whereas Rosemary, yeah, is salaried, is very powerful and valued within her industry. But at the same time, she really worked hard for that. And she had to climb the ladder too without a safety net or without a cushy safety net. And with Naomi and Rosemary, I feel like so much of Naomi's existential despair, in a sense, the reason why she is so obsessed with Rosemary and so obsessed with writing a book is because she, she, I think deep down knows that she is completely squandering her resources in a sense. Like she believes that she, if she's not taking advantage of her privilege, then what is she even doing? And like, should she even like be a person in the world. Like, I think she's so embarrassed, simultaneously embarrassed by her privilege while also being very grateful for it, but not knowing how to sort of square those two things. And when Rosemary sort of calls her out for it later in the book, and it it really cuts her because I think it finally allows her to see how other people might see her, how other people might see that her complaints and her whining are like incredibly unself-aware when it really comes down to it. And I wanted Rosemary to be the one to show her that because I think, interestingly enough, it's it's given that Naomi has put Rosemary on this pedestal in that way, having Rosemary say, actually, you're doing fine. Like, you don't understand your position in, in this in this society. And I think I need to show it to you. But it also is very validating to Naomi in, in a sense, because finally she feels seen and understood, even if it's in a way something that she doesn't want to look at and doesn't want to confront she still wanted someone to point it out and to see it. And I think that was a really fun scene for me to write because there were just a lot of dynamics being being played with in that moment. So I'm glad you brought that up. And I hope that I was somewhat succinct about it. Very much so. You're, you're, you write very tightly on a line level, on a scene level, on all levels. It's, it's my next question to you. So the first, I call them pause pebbles because I am mm. lame and I need to come up with silly names for things. But they're essentially these lines in books that, make you pause and that you want to collect them kind of like a little treasure that you want to collect later to then think it over and it just makes you you don't necessarily agree with it that's not what it's about it's more about like giving you pause in the best way it makes you think and the first one I highlighted was loving someone I thought required learning all their stories a perpetual excavation my question is when you're writing these beautiful insights now this is only this is only one point of view this is first person so We're totally inside Naomi's head. When you're writing these beautiful lines, do they come to you as you're writing? Or do you have like these insights later as you're doing the dishes and then you like find places to insert them or neither, both? How do you do it? Well, thank you for the compliment. Um, And that's also one of my favorite lines. And it's a good question. I think oftentimes they do come to me while I'm writing because I I forget who originally said this, but I think it might've been, might've been Didion. 
but it, correct me if I'm wrong, I might be totally off, is that I write to find out what I think. And as I'm writing and trying to puzzle out a scene, trying to puzzle out a character, usually I just come upon those moments. And usually I have to polish the actual sentence to make it sound as good as it did in my head. But in that particular moment, that did come to me in scene because she had just been talking to her new boyfriend for so long and trying to figure out how to crack his interior because he is this sort of reticent withholding Welshman <laughs> and knowing his stories felt to her like a triumph, like she was being let in, being trusted with his stories. But I think most of those lines probably do come out while I'm in the shower or doing the dishes. And then I rush to put them in my notes app and then I figure out I can insert them later. And I think that, that is, that's so often what my writer friends say they, as well. Like I am the queen of having brilliant thoughts in the shower, stumbling out, my hair is wet, I'm dripping all over the floor and I like run to my computer to write it down. And I just end up like slipping on my own water on the way back to the bathroom to get my towel. So it's just like, it's chaos. And sometimes I remember them enough to write them down. And sometimes I'm like cursing myself. But yeah, I, I do go back over my sentences quite a bit. I'm trying to be less of a perfectionist about them because I think what's fun about the book that I wrote is that so much of it is in action, in dialogue. And so I wasn't trying to be as precise with every sentence I wanted to keep moving forward like if the sentence wasn't perfect I could at least say to myself well it's moving the plot forward it's revealing character but my first love is literary fiction so I'm always aspiring to write sentences that would that would I I would come upon and find pretty if it was someone else's work so that's the goal and I'm, I'm glad that there are certain lines that feel that way to readers like you so you're saying that your first love is literary fiction. Do you also teach? Please tell me that you do. I do, actually. I do teach. I teach children, teenagers, um, and adults. I, I, It's so much fun. It's so rewarding. I taught for the first time when I was in the MFA program at NYU. It's actually something that pretty much every grad student does. They adjunct and teach an undergrad creative writing class. And I remember at the time being thrown into it and feeling like so out of my depth and such imposter syndrome. But I got in there and I was like, you know what? I actually have absorbed so much knowledge over the years that I've been in workshops, over the years that I've been that I've studied under writers I admire. And so I was able to sort of build upon things I had learned, but also kind of infuse my own ideas into it and, and start to trust myself more and think about, you know, I, I am an authority. Like I know, I know a little something, something about writing. And I just, I love teaching because for me, it's always about the conversations we have in class. Like my favorite classes are not when I'm lecturing for 30 minutes on end. It's when everyone in the class is contributing an insight and it starts to sort of bounce off in new directions. And that's something that I really strive for now. I teach with a organization called the Writer Circle, which is based in New Jersey. But since I live in Brooklyn, I teach all remote, which is fantastic because I get students from all over the world. <laughs> I've had a, a young girl from Singapore this semester, which has been really interesting because she's logging on before she goes to school in the morning at 5.30 a.m. So bless her and her love for writing. And yeah, I absolutely love it. I'm working on the novel continuum course with my adults, with my adult students. So they bring chapters to class. We discuss them. We talk about the overarching narrative. We talk about how they can improve their chapters, how they can revise, how they can make their, I don't want to say thesis statement, but how they can make what they want the book to be, what they want the book to say more concise and more coherent. Because oftentimes I think you need someone else to tell you what your book is about, 
like you'll kind of muddle through a lot of times I have muddled through and not really known what a book is about until it's done and had to go back and be like, what, where was I most alive on the page? What chapters were most exciting to me and why? And that is probably the heart of the book. That is what I should sort of center the whole book around and sharpen that thread, that narrative. So that's what we work on. And it's really wonderful. And everyone's like so talented and so generous with their feedback. And so I absolutely love, I love teaching them. And I'm glad you asked. (laughs) That's amazing. So what are you working on now? What's next for you? So I am working very slowly on a sort of reimagining of a children's book that I loved when I was younger. So I don't know if anyone else has read Katie's Picture Show by James Mayhew, but when I was young, I was read to by my grandma and my parents. And I think part of me just loved that it had my name in the title because when you're five or six years old, that's something that can really excite you. But it's essentially about a little girl who goes to the museum with her grandmother And she has this supernatural ability to enter paintings at will. And she interacts with the subjects of the paintings, both human and animal. And the book manages to be both this lovely Western art history course, while also being this lovely adventure, a sort of Narnia-esque adventure for this young child. And it just really lit my imagination on fire when I was young. And I recently rediscovered the book and I've been thinking a lot about art because I inherited a lot of art recently from my grandparents after they passed. And a lot of the art is just sort of always gazing at me from across the room as I'm moving about my life. And so I thought, how fun would it be to sort of write an edgy, darker, adult version of that children's book that I loved so much and sort of make it my own and let it go in unexpected directions. So like I said, very early stages. Love knowing that. Can't wait to read it. For our last question, it's more of an exchange. I will recommend you a book. You will recommend me and all of our listeners a book. And then we're going to check in with each other to be like, yep, you know my taste or no, I didn't like that. So I am going to suggest that you read How to Be Eaten by Maria Adelman. You're going to love it. I was going to suggest this even before you told me about the new book you're working on. But given the new book you're working on, seriously, get read it. The agent, I, I read this because I admired the agent. The agent is also the agent who sold White Ivy. And it's one of my all-time favorite books. And so I was like, what else has she sold? Because I love her taste. So now I'm obsessed with all her books. And you should definitely read How to Be. Now I want you to recommend a book. For us, it can be a book that you've already read and you're super excited about. It can be a classic one that you've read millions of years ago. It can be the last book. It can be anything. It's so funny that you mentioned that book because I've literally seen it around, like probably on Instagram or at the bookstore. And I have had it like on my radar for a while. And I think this is a sign that I finally have to go get it. So I have heard of it and I'm so excited and thank you. And it's sort of, it's sort of like a, a modern fairy tale, correct? And is that probably why? Yes. Kind of So yes, but it goes so beyond that. Okay. I'm like, so excited. Like it's, it's out of this world. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you. So I, oh God, it's so, it's so difficult to choose because I have read close to 50 books this year and so many of them have resonated with me in so many different ways. One that is probably more contemporary that I love, and this is sort of an auto by author for me at this point. I read two of her novels, but the first was Migrations by Charlotte McConaughey. It did get a lot of attention back in 2020, so it's possible that listeners have already read it, but she also wrote Once There Were Wolves. I love them so much because I just feel like I am so excited when I read something that teaches me something new about the world, and she really is very environmentally focused, 
the first novel, the premise is this kind of troubled young woman with a dark past, which is eventually revealed and is so fascinating and beautiful and heartbreaking, goes on this voyage on a boat. She kind of talks her way onto a boat and follows these birds as they make their final migration, hence the title. And it's just gorgeous. It, it works with flashbacks really well. They feel very compelling. They don't feel like they're dragging the book down as some flashbacks can occasionally feel. So highly recommend either of Charlotte McConaughey's novels. And one that I finally read this summer that I had never read somehow, even though it's a classic, was The Unbearable Lightness of Being by Milan Kundera. And I just, I was like weeping on the beach. I was underlining every other line. It just really spoke to me and just- That is a dangerous book. Oh, like, it really is. People make life changes because of that book. Like 100%. it just makes you reconceptualize everything. You're like, 100%. you know, fuck this shit. I'm going to move. Yeah. I'm going to do this. A hundred percent. I was like, I need to like have, I need to break up with everyone in my life and start a new life, you know, but no, it was incredible. And the writing is just exquisite. And yeah, I just, I fully was telling everyone in my life that was anyone unlucky enough or lucky enough to like cross paths with me during my reading experience was just, I was like grabbing them by the neck and telling them to read it. So if you have yet to read that classic as I had yet to read it until this summer, then walk, I mean, don't walk, run, don't walk <laughs> to get it from your library or your nearest bookstore because yeah, it's it's epic. It is I'll the never, psychedelic I'll never books. It. No, it's yeah. the psychedelic <laughs> books. Like never tried psychedelics, but people keep saying that it's like this life-changing experience and makes yeah. you, you know, rethink everything. That is the psychedelic of books. It was. Well, Caitlin, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, thank this you. Such a pleasure. We hope that you will come out with your new novel soon. But in the meantime, listeners, if you've attended my webinars, if you listen to the podcast, you have already heard me rave about a novel obsession. But seriously, go buy it. Go get it from your local library, add it to your Christmas wish list. I don't know, but get your hands on this book. And then please tell me what you thought, because I was completely obsessed with Naomi. And yes, I get that she is quote unquote unlikable, but I loved her. Maybe unlikable, but definitely lovable. So thank you for writing that amazing novel. Thank you so much, Cece, for having me. This was so much fun. I'm going to be beaming the rest of the day from this wonderful interview and chat. And here's a sneak preview of next week's episode. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup 
for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists, while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.